For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we've been studying 2 Corinthians, and this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to this, this church in the city of Corinth, written almost 2,000 years ago. And we're in this section of the letter where he's laying out these different pictures of what authentic Christianity is like. And last week, we, he used the picture of one of these Roman victory parades that would fill the city with this, this fragrance of the incense that they would burn after these great victories. And Paul says, you know, we're like a fragrance of Christ. And God kind of wafts us out into the world, and we spread the knowledge of him. And we have an aroma about us, a spiritual aroma. And he follows up this by asking this question, this metaphor. He says, and who's adequate for these things? Because if you think about it, if we're really to represent God to the world, that's a pretty tall order. That's something where I would feel kind of afraid of messing it up, and who am I to represent God to people? Well, Paul is going to answer his question just a few verses later. He says, it's not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Yeah, so what makes us adequate is not that we're like this like really spirit, really holy person, this really disciplined person, this person with this great personality, this person that has done all of these good works, done all these rituals, has gotten my life cleaned up. No, he says, what makes us adequate to represent God, it's nothing that comes from us. There's, we, we can't consider anything as coming from ourselves. Our adequacy is from God. Who, he says, made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. A new covenant. What is he talking about, the new covenant? Uh, this is one of those Bible words. Uh, and, you know, later on in this passage, just a few verses later, he's going to contrast it with what he calls the old covenant. And so his, his audience understood what he was talking about here. But a lot of us don't. And so we're going to need to spend some time here before we really get much further into our passage talking about what is a covenant, what is the old covenant, and what is the new covenant. And it's a little complex, but don't worry, I have pictures, so we're going to be all right. The old and the new covenants. A covenant is just a word that means a contract, an agreement, a deal. Um, <clears throat> In fact, the word testament also is, is related to this word for covenant. The Old Testament and the New Testament represent the Old and the New Covenants of God. Those are two parts of our Bibles. But this is a contract, an agreement, a deal. And so if you read the Old Testament, you see God makes a lot of deals. He lays out a lot of different covenants. And some of them, the form they take is this, where God says, I promise to blank, and you don't have to do anything. It's just a promise that God makes, and it's completely independent of, of what the humans he's talking to do or don't do. There's other types of covenants, though, where God says, I promise to do blank, and you need to do blank. And as long as you do your part of the deal, I'm going to hold up my part of the deal. Like if you ever have leased an apartment, you know your landlord's going to want you to sign a lease. That's basically a covenant. And the landlord is going to say, you know, on the first of each month, you're going to pay me X number of dollars in rent. And then I am going to let you live in my apartment that I own. And um, if stuff breaks, I'll eventually get around to fixing it, maybe. <laughs> and so, you know, God sort of had this deal with the people of Israel. And, th and this, this one particular covenant, the old covenant that he's going to talk about, was 
a covenant that he delivered very early on in the Old Testament through a guy named Moses, who's a pretty famous dude in the Old Testament. God gave the Old Covenant through Moses. And this Old Covenant had a couple of different elements to it. One was his law, all right? So the most famous of these would be the Ten Commandments. But there was a whole lot more commandments than just ten of them. But, you know, this part of his law, this had a whole bunch of thou shalt not and thou shalt and, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt not lie and thou shalt have no other gods before me and so on and so forth. A lot of regulations for how he wanted his people to live. Um, you know, he set up um, their whole system of worship in his law. He also set up how they were supposed to run their nation because, you know, the nation of Israel at that time was pretty unique. It was actually a nation that God was creating, and so it, it sort of served as their constitution as well. And so he gave his law through Moses, and the, um, you know, the, the Ten Commandments were actually inscribed on tablets of stone, but the rest of it was just written on paper because that would be really heavy if the first five books of the Bible were all written on tablets of stone. Um, but what God said is, look, if you keep all of my commandments, then I will protect you, I will bless you, things will go very well for you, and I'll let you live in this land that I'm going to give you. On the other hand, if you disobey my commandments, then I'm not going to protect you, I'm going to withdraw my blessing for, from you, and things are going to go very poorly for you. And so you just need to obey all of my commandments. And the people are like, oh yeah, sure, no problem. So they've got his law revealed through Moses. Moses, this is, he went up on Mount Sinai and would speak with God and would come down and reveal more of what God had said. He was kind of like the go-between between the people and God. Another thing that God gave through Moses was the tabernacle. The tabernacle. So here's a picture of what the tabernacle would have looked like. You know, originally the tabernacle was just a big tent that they would set up out in the desert. Quite large. Eventually, this became a permanent structure known as the temple. But for the first uh, 450 years or so of its existence, a tabernacle was a tent. And um, you can see they had this big altar out front. You can kind of see the priests, and there's like a washing basin and this like this cow that one of the priests has near the sacrificial altar. Um, but, you know, this tabernacle, you know, one of the, the real points of interest here is this tent in the center of the outer wall. You can see that. And if we take the lid off of that tent, you can see this tent has two rooms. The first room was called the holy place, and it had a little bit of furniture in there that God specified, and only priests could go into the holy place. The second room was called the holy of holies. So priests only in the first room. The second room's the Holy of Holies, and nobody was allowed to go in here. There was only one priest, the high priest, once a year could go in there for a very special sacrifice. And that was after a lot of cleansings and other rituals to prepare himself for this task. And so the Holy of Holies was supposed to represent the very place where God dwelt. Now, of course, they knew God didn't actually live there, and they said that on multiple occasions, but this was symbolism. This was to show there's God, and on the one hand, God wants to be close to us. You know, he wanted this tabernacle set up right in the middle of where all the rest of the Israelites set up their tents. God wants a relationship. But on the other hand, because we have fallen short of his, his standards, he, we can't be in his presence. Because God, there's a very lofty view of God 
presented in both the Old and the New Testaments. I mean, look how Paul describes God in 1 Timothy 6. He calls him God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see. Yeah, that picture is in both the Old and the New Testament. You know, God tells Moses, no one can see me and live. That's just how far I am above you. Just to come in my presence, it would, you'd drop down dead. And so that's a real problem from a God that wants to have a relationship with his people. And so he's got this, this special room that's his place. There's a big, thick veil separating the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place. And um, what would happen then is the people when they failed to follow God's laws. And if you read the history of the Old Testament, they failed miserably again and again and again. God said, when you fail, here's what you need to do. You need to bring an animal. You need to bring it to the tabernacle. And then you need to bring that up to the priest. And you need to lay your hand on its head, and the priest will help you do this, and you confess your sins. And it symbolically transfers your shortcomings onto this animal And then the priest will take that animal and will kill the animal. And this whole thing is a big teaching tool. This was like the biggest teaching tool in the Old Testament, the the tabernacle and the sacrifices. God was teaching the people that sin brings death. And that what, what happened to that animal, that really is what you deserve. And yet... I'm I'm not going to hold it against you. This innocent sacrifice is going to take your place. Not that an animal could ever actually substitute for a human. Um, Humans are so much, so much worth so much more than animals. And so you've got this picture that goes on that God sets up very early, early on in his his law that he reveals to Moses. He's got all these regulations, things that people need to do, and then this whole system of pictures of what do you do when you fail to live up to my standards. And so over the next 800 years, the people sinned and offered sacrifices, and they kept sinning, and they kept offering sacrifices, and sinning, and sacrificing, and sinning, and sacrificing, and year after year, this went on, century after century. Until finally... After 800 years, it's pretty obvious. The point is pretty obvious, right? There's something wrong. You people are not getting it. God says through one of his prophets, Jeremiah, in around 600 BC, he says, Behold, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. New covenant, just like Paul said in our passage here in 2 Corinthians 3. A new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. Is it going to be like the old covenant? No. It will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant. Yes, that's the law that he revealed to Moses. And he says they broke that covenant. It's not that there was something wrong with God's laws. These revealed God's perfect moral character. What it showed is the problem with humans. We we broke the covenant again and again. And so what does God say? He says, instead of taking them by the hand, I will take my people by the heart. I will put my instructions deep, deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. You see, the old covenant written on tablets of stone. 
People would look at it. They would try to follow it. God says, I'm going straight down inside. This is internal versus external. Much deeper is where this new covenant will be written. He says, and I will be their God and they will be my people. And he goes on to say how people are going to know me. And so we see a relational closeness in the new covenant that's much different than the ritualized distance of the old covenant, you know, with the big veil and you can't come in here. This is, this is so much more personal and relational than the old covenant. And he says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. Remember in the old covenant, day after day, month after month, year after year, they went back again and again and again to offer sacrifices. And then they would fail again and they would offer more sacrifices. And it was obvious that something was not working. But now he says, I'm coming up with a solution where forgiveness will be once and forever and there will never need to be another sacrifice again. And that's the good news of the new covenant. And so what happens, what we see here is that in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant predicts its own future obsolescence. It says a day is coming when this is not going to be in effect anymore. There's going to be something new, and that's the thing you should do then. This thing is temporary. So then, let's fast forward 600 more years. Here we are, the last night of Christ's life before he goes to the cross. He's sitting there with his disciples, and he's, this is the Last Supper. He's telling them, I want you to drink this wine, I want you to eat this bread, and I want you to do this in remembrance of me. This is the only ritual I want you to do from now on, Jesus says. And look what he says here. He says, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. He says, you remember that? Remember Jeremiah? This right here, right now, is where this begins. We enter phase one of the new covenant. This is an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. He says, you know all those sacrifices we've been offering for the last 1,400 years? Again and again and again and again? He says, those all pointed to me. From now on, there never needs to be another sacrifice because on the cross, Jesus Christ does what no animal could ever do. He was actually, he was fully man, but he was also fully God. And so as fully man, he is an acceptable substitute for us. He can stand in our place. But because he's fully God, he can stand in a lot of people's places. In fact, anyone who wants to receive his forgiveness through his blood, through his sacrifice, he invites you to freely come and receive forgiveness. And so Jesus sets up the new covenant. And then he goes to the cross, and as he hangs there, and as God pours out his, the the Father pours out the judgment onto the Son, he cries out in a loud voice, it is finished. And it was finished. He paid the price in full. And now, at the very moment where Jesus died in the temple, that big, thick curtain, as thick as a human fist, it says that that curtain 
which was 60 feet tall by 30 feet wide, ripped right down the middle. That curtain that separated the most holy place, the holy of holies, from the place where everybody else could be, that was ripped right in half. And God said, we don't need any more barrier between me and my people. Now, because you can be truly forgiven at the heart level, we can come into a relationship with each other. Hebrews 8.13 says, when he said a new covenant, he's made the first one obsolete. Yeah, the new one, the new covenant, says the old covenant is out of date. The whole thing is set aside. And so what does that mean for us under the new covenant? What it means is Jesus is the only sacrifice that we will ever need. We don't need to offer sacrifices again and again and again and again. That forgiveness is complete and it's once and for all. And that's good news. Jesus is the only priest we'll ever need. He calls him our great high priest. It says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who is also fully God. And so we have Jesus. He is the one who gains us access to the Father. We don't need to go through another human intermediary. We don't need the indirect approach anymore. We can go directly with boldness into the presence of God. We don't need to go to a holy place. In the old covenant, they went to the temple and then they offered their thing to the priest and the priest offered it up. Now, we don't have to go there. God is with us at all times. What it, what it actually says is, when we receive Christ's forgiveness, he actually sends the Holy Spirit who comes and lives in our hearts. And so instead of God symbolically dwelling in this building, God sends his spirit, and he really dwells in the heart of every single Christian. So now we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we don't need to go somewhere to talk to God. We can talk to God wherever we are, lying in our bed at night, walking around during the day, driving in our car. We can talk to God if you have the Holy Spirit. And finally, and this one is pretty, pretty hard for some people to take, spiritual growth works differently under the new covenant. Scripture says the new covenant believer is no longer under law. And what some Christians want to do is they, they might throw out parts of the old covenant, but they want to keep parts of it too. And it's unfortunate because because God said we are now adequate as servants of a new covenant. And the old covenant is obsolete. And we need to leave it in the rearview mirror and serve God in the new way, in the newness of the Spirit. And Paul was under fire at Corinth from false teachers that were doing exactly that. They wanted to bring the old covenant back in and mix it with some parts of the new covenant. They were criticizing Paul. They were doing what people did a lot of times. When Paul would plant a church, they would come in behind him and be like, oh, Paul didn't tell you about the law of Moses? Paul didn't tell you about all the other stuff you have to do? Boy, let's, how about we fill you in on the rest of the story? And so they would criticize Paul for not teaching this stuff. They would tout their own credentials and wonder what his credentials really were. And this new covenant, Paul says, is so important and this is what makes us adequate to be God's representatives. We are servants of a new covenant. 
Our adequacy is from God. And it's Jesus Christ alone, and not anything that I do or any rituals I perform like under the old covenant. This is under the new covenant, and it is Christ alone. And I want to make clear that under the old covenant, no one was saved by works there either. The New Testament is clear on that. You know, this attitude of coming to God with my sacrifice for the sins that I've committed. You know, he didn't want the external actions, and he's critical of people who show up with their sacrifices, and he says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And I hate those kind of sacrifices. No, they were supposed to see that this was an act of trust in God. They knew that an animal could never actually atone for their sins. So they, it was really an act of faith as they did this. But now we see under the new covenant that it's so much clearer in Christ, and there's so much more freedom and access in Christ. False teachers were trying to bring the Corinthians back under the law. And you see that as clear as day, the way Paul is, is arguing here in this chapter. They were trying to mix elements of the old in with the new. In other words, they said, yes, Christ is good. Christ plus rituals, works, law, these other things. Christ alone is not enough. You've got to add something to what he has done. And what Jesus said on the cross is it is finished. Christ plus works is what they were arguing. And look what Paul says. He says, he starts off by saying, we're not like many peddling the word of God. These false teachers, these con artists. In fact, this, this word is used of dishonest merchants who dilute their wine with water to make greater profits. You know, like the, the wine salesmen come to town, they have so much wine, and they take some water, which is free, they dump that in there, and they'd have, you know, 50% more to sell. And Paul says, if you're going to be the fragrance of Christ, you can't be diluting the new by mixing in some of the old. He says, you've got to make a complete break and just go fully with the new covenant because the old one is obsolete. If you try to mix the old covenant in with the new, you distort it. And unfortunately, that's what so many people still try to do nowadays. Let's read. Having gotten that background... Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Right? They, were, they were saying, what's Paul's credentials? Who is this guy? Why are you listening to him? This whole book, he's really defending his, himself and his authority here. He says, do we need like some people with letters of recommendation to you or from you? That's what these false teachers would bring. They say, oh, look, I'm endorsed by this person here, and I've studied under this person here. And they would, they would come in, and that was what gave them their authority. And they're saying, where was Paul's letter of recommendation? He didn't have one. And how does Paul answer? How does Paul answer them? You know, if, if you think about it, this would be typical of how they would think. You know, under the old covenant, what qualified people to serve God, to do ministry? You couldn't just decide, I'm going to become a priest when I grow up. No, you had to be born into the right family. You had to be born into the, into the tribe of Levi. And that was how you became a priest. It was not open to just anyone. It was a very special class of people that did the ministry. And everybody else just came to them and let them do the ministry. In the day of Christ, this had expanded a little bit. They still had priests, but then the rabbis, what they felt like qualified them was who did they study under? And who else could they quote? And the rabbis, people would ask the rabbis a question and say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this. But Rabbi so-and-so says that. And this other Rabbi so-and-so, he says this. 
And Jesus shocked everybody when they asked him, what do you think about this? And he goes, well, you've heard people say this, this, and this, but I say unto you, and he just spoke with his own authority. And they were like, whoa, this guy's speaking with authority. And so what qualified them? You know, it was who they studied under, who else they could cite. They would derive their authority from others. But what qualifications do we need to serve God under the new covenant? What bar do we have to clear? And the answer is the Holy Spirit within us. Paul says, you are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. If you think about it, Paul probably had better credentials than any of his other critics. He studied under Gamaliel, the most prestigious rabbi of his day. I mean, his qualifications were superb. He says, as for the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. Better than any of his critics. But what does he put forward? He doesn't put forward his background, his scholarship, his degrees, his experience. No, he says, there's a whole church full of people at Corinth. Those are my credentials. I showed up there, and there there were no Christians. And as a result of God's spirit, Working through me there, there's this whole church full of people at Corinth. That is the evidence of the Spirit's work. And this, I think this tells us several things. You know, this speaks to the bond the Spirit can form when you really love someone from the heart. You know, God's Spirit within us, it, it just, it enables, Scripture says God is love, and it enables a new level of depth in our love. And so Paul's saying to the Corinthians, I loved you guys, and I was there right from the very beginning, and I've been through so much with you, and I have you guys on my heart. And this is what you will find as as you walk with God and you serve other people, is you find you're forming relationships that are deeper than you could have imagined. And you go through things with people, and you see people transformed from just just a hot mess to somebody who's a godly man or a godly woman, somebody who is other-centered, somebody who is crippled by their anxieties and their depression, and now they're a grateful, joyful, peaceful person, someone who could only think of themselves, and now There's someone who's other-centered, who's a loving person. Someone who just trashed every relationship they'd ever been in, transformed to someone who can build successful relationships, who can build a successful uh, marriage and family someday. And you're there, and you go through trials with people, and as this happens, you just find this love and this affection And it's like you're carrying around these people with you in your heart. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people here in this room who know what I'm talking about. But it is awesome, and it's a level of love 
that I just did not think I could form with people. And God, his spirit enables, it enables you to form it with person after person after person. And Paul says, you are our letter. You are the evidence of God's work among you. And why do I have you written on my heart? There's my qualifications. You know, under the new covenant, we follow organic principles of ministry. You know, that's a seminary degree or an ordination or somebody waves a magic wand over you. That doesn't make you a Christian leader. You know, people come in and they're like, oh, I've got a seminary degree. I think I'd like to uh, just go ahead and start teaching. And we're like, well, if you'd like to start teaching, you should start with loving someone. Why don't you serve somebody? Why don't you do what Jesus did and start washing, washing people's feet, doing the dirty work? And you know, even the youngest believer with the Holy Spirit can do ministry. I'm not saying you can't get better at it, but at its core, loving someone, sharing what Christ has done for you, telling them the good news, that even though we're, we sin and we deserve death, that, that Christ died in our place and we can have eternal life, that is the message, and that is ministry under the new covenant. It's not reserved for some special class of people. You get in with people. You serve people. The Spirit gives you special abilities, gifts, and God begins to do something in people's lives. God grows your spiritual influence as you grow in your love for others, as you grow in your knowledge of His Word. Yeah, I mean, equipping is, is good. It's important. We need to learn the Word. We need to learn how to use the Word in ministry. But, um, you know, that comes sort of along the way as it's sort of on-the-job training. And then you find them writing people on your heart. You find yourself having a life-changing impact, an eternal impact in some people's lives, and it's so satisfying. And then maybe you go through a time of discouragement like Paul's going through shortly before he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. And you get worried about whether people are going to make it. And then you start to wonder, is God really behind this? This can be pretty painful. We go through failure. And then you look around and you see a room full of awesome people. And you've got to ask yourself, where did all these people come from? Was this something that, that humans came up with? No. This is something that God is doing. And its evidence is right here with the changed lives right here in this room and plenty more that aren't here tonight because they're in their own meetings, their own, their own Bible studies. And we see this room full of awesome people. And, and that's, that's, I think, part of what Paul is seeing here is he's like, look, I was in agony of spirit, but then I see, I see you guys. And I know that God really did something here and he's still doing something. He says, such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. And then get what he says next. He says, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Yes, he's talking about the law here. It's clearly the tablets, the, the things written on tablets of stone. That's got to be what he's talking about. He's contrasting the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Focusing on the law, Scripture teaches, is not good for our spiritual growth. 
In fact, God's law, it can point out what we're doing wrong. You know, it's like a mirror in that sense of the word. You know, you look in the mirror and you just see this big fat zit on your face. And it's like, I mean, all the mirror does is just point out how gross and big and disgusting that thing is. It doesn't actually do anything to make it go away. It just reflects my, it helps me see my problems very clearly. And that's what the law does. Focusing on the law, though, can even make us want to sin more. Why would he say the letter kills? You don't believe me? Look at what it says in Romans 7, 5. He talks about the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work. It's almost like you see a thing that says, don't do that, and you're like, I sort of want to do that now. (laughs) Romans 6, 14. Sin shall not be your master, because you're not under law, but under grace. What's the implication there? If you're under law, sin would be your master. Still don't believe me? 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The law gives sin its power. Okay, like sin, it like eats the law for breakfast, okay? That's like a good, a good balanced diet, just focusing on the law and what I shouldn't do. And yeah, maybe I won't do the thing that I'm really trying not to do. But it's, I'm going to break the law in so many other ways. Christ brought the law of love. It's a new way. It's the Holy Spirit. Spiritual growth comes as the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. Not I focused on a long list of rules, but I focus on God. I talk with Him. I look at what He says is true about me. I thank Him for His grace, for the transformation in my life, for my eternity in heaven, and you slowly find yourself changing. Yes, we're aware of the commands of Scripture, but our focus is on the truths of Scripture. God transforms us. Look what he calls it in verse 7. He says, the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, it did come with glory, but it is the ministry of death. (laughs) He says, it came with glory so the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. All right, what's it talking about here? Well, this is another story from Exodus about when Moses was first receiving the law from God. Check it out, Exodus 34. Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of covenant law in his hands. He was not aware, though, that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. So I don't know, maybe it looks something like this. You got Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. He's got the tablets of law in his hand. And little does Moses know, but he's looking around like this. (laughs) Well, Aaron and all the other Israelites, they see Moses and his radiant face. So here they are. And what's their reaction? They were afraid to come near him. They're like, whoa! (laughs) (laughs) And so they did some brainstorming and they came up with a solution. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. (laughs) And so he'd walk around with this, this veil on his head to keep from freaking people out. And then he would go and spend more time with God. And it was like just being somehow in the vicinity of God and hearing from God. I mean, the mountain was like lightning and thunder and smoke. And it was, it was terrifying everyone. 
And then they see Moses come down, and he's glowing. And it was just too much for the people to take. They're like, look, we got it. You talk to God for us. You cover up. We can't handle this. He's showing how much higher God is than them is really what this glow showed. It was bad news, actually, for the people. The glow on Moses' face. And so he covered it up to keep from freaking them out. And it says, you know, even the Old Covenant had glory. I mean, Paul's not down on the Old Covenant. I mean, the Old Covenant was glorious. It was sweet. But nothing compared to the new one. He says, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation, there he goes again, insulting the law, the ministry of condemnation has glory, how much more does the ministry of righteousness, the new covenant, abound in glory? For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. You know, you look at the moon on a bright, you know, full moon kind of night. There's no clouds. You know, you you can walk outside. Sometimes you can get a shadow off of the, the full moon. And it just is so bright outside. But then, no matter how bright that moon is, when the sun comes up, that moon's light is really going to pale in comparison to the sun. You know, it really was just a reflection of the sun. All of its glory it just got from the, the thing that was coming. And Paul says, that's what the old covenant's like. It was, I mean, it was awesome for its day, but it would be a tragedy for us to go back to it. If that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. And therefore, he says, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And so he says, we speak pretty, we speak openly. We're not covering things up. We're not hiding things. We're ministers of the new covenant. We're telling people the good news. You know, in our case, what we bring is is good news about the death of Christ for our sins. He says, we're not like Moses. He used to put a veil over his face. So the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Yeah, the glory of Moses was freaking people out. Paul says, we've got a glory, though, don't we? And, you know, we don't literally glow when we become Christians. Just like we don't literally smell when we become Christians with the aroma of Christ. In fact, you know, the glow of chapter 3 is like the smell of chapter 2. He says, when we become Christians, there's something about us that shines out with the glory of God. Jesus said, you're, you're like the, the lamp. You don't cover it up, you shine. You're like the city on a dark night. You don't cover the city up, you shine. Paul says we shine like stars in the world as we hold forth the word of life. This light image is throughout the New Testament. He says their minds, though, were hardened. And honestly, until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. Yeah, he's talking about his Jewish brethren, probably these false teachers. He's like, they don't get it. In this case, the veil's on their end. They're the ones that are closing their eyes to this new direction that God is moving. He says, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart, but whenever a person turns to the Lord the veil is taken away. And that's what we see. When we become a Christian, we place our faith in Christ, all of a sudden his word just explodes with new meaning and insights. It's super cool. I remember reading the Bible before I was a Christian and after I was a Christian. I couldn't believe I was reading the same book. And then he concludes, he says, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, 
But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. A little hard to track what he's saying here. But what he's saying is this. God's Spirit transforms us and sets us free as we spend time with him. You know, Moses, we think that'd be pretty cool to go up on Mount Sinai and have a glowing face. But Moses says, no, you guys have it better than I do. Because you guys, you get to have God's Spirit dwell inside of you. You get more access to God than I ever had. And so we go, and we sit with God, and we spend time with him, and we behold his glory. We contemplate as well. We look into his word. We talk with him. And we slowly are changed by his spirit. We receive the liberty. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. God sets us free. And it transforms us. And it makes us more like Christ. You know how it is when you spend time with somebody and you start picking up some of their mannerisms? Like, uh, like there's this one guy in our fellowship who's pretty influential. And I can always tell whenever somebody's been hanging out with Den, okay? Because they'll be like, questionable, <laughs> savage, nerd. You just got these expressions that you almost can't help adopting for your own. And it's like that with God, except way better. Because we spend time with him, and he's, he's got access to us through his spirit, and so his spirit changes us, changes our hearts. We're not memorizing a list of rules. No. He's changing us from the inside out, and it's so sweet. And then we can show his glory to others. You know, this, this word beholding can also mean reflecting. It's a, it's, it's a word with, with sort of a, a range of meaning there. And so not only are we transformed, but then we shine out into the world. And we show people the light of God. Very cool. Application then. The church is always trying to go back to the old covenant. And we don't have time to really cover this at length, but when you talk about a sanctuary, no running in the sanctuary, no chewing gum in the sanctuary, No drinking or eating in the sanctuary. Sanctuary means holy place. We've directly imported an Old Testament concept. We've made a building the place where God is when that's not where God is at all. What that does is it divides my life into the place I got to be good and the place I can really be me. And God says, no. I want want a relationship with you 24-7. I want you to see things as they really are. Christian priests... Even though scripture says Christ is the only priest we'll ever need, we have direct access to God through him. What that does is it divides Christians into the people that do ministry and the people who can't. And it, it, it communicates something. It communicates a much lower status than we really have under the new covenant. And by the way, what's with the weird outfits that, we, that priests wear? Where do those come from? Okay, it's not like they're wearing styles from 20 or 30 years ago, all right? It's not like they're wearing hammer pants or or whatever. No, I mean, the stuff they wear, this was never in style. Like the robes and the weird hats and the sequins and stuff. Like, this, this comes from the Old Testament. That's when people dressed like that. But we've brought them right into the New Covenant. The Sabbath. You've got to honor the Sabbath. What about the other six days of the week? 
God says no day is higher than the other. Liturgical counter. Well, I better go to church. It's Christmas. What do you mean? <laughs> That's old covenant thinking. Formal worship service. Sit down, stand up, kneel. Now do this. Now chant after me. Uh, what? It's, it communicates impersonal relationship. What relationship do you have where you do anything like that? Where do you recite a memorized speech to someone every single day five different times? That would be so weird. Infant baptism. This is derived from the Old Testament practice of circumcision. That's what infant baptism is based on. What it does is it makes people think I'm a Christian because I was baptized as a baby, but I've never actually put my faith in Christ. What a horrible thing to, to communicate to someone. Oh, man, the, the law had the nation state of Israel, which was God's country, and then it makes Christians want to take back this country for God, a country which was never his country. It's completely different than Old Testament Israel and leaves all sorts of problems. And finally, we see a law emphasis in so much of Christianity. And these are people, they're well-intentioned in every case here, but, but they're wrong. With, when hammering people with the law and lists of do's and don'ts and guilt, it obscures radical grace. It robs Christians of the deep transformation that the Spirit wants to provide. And it leaves people under a pile, another list of things I'm not doing right, another list of things I gotta do. Following God is this horrible duty. And there's none of the freedom of the relationship, the joy that God wants us to have. And so what are we saying? Some of us may still need to turn to Christ and let him remove the veil. That's something you can do. You're not destined to have a veil or not have a veil. No, when we turn to Christ, the Spirit removes the veil. The Spirit comes into us and shows us, opens our eyes to the truth. And for those of us who have already come into the new covenant, come into a relationship with Christ... Let's not forget the advice of Galatians 5.1. Paul says, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free. And there we go. The new covenant. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> yes, Lord, how cool this is. This is so different from religion. This is relationship. And this is, um, it's not our works, but it's your works. It's, it's what you did through your son. This is your grace, Lord. This is not something we earn, but it's something you freely give us. Thank you that you give us a new and better way. Thank you that you put your spirit in our hearts and for how relational and uh, personal you are and how spiritual growth is really, it's, it's a matter of spending time with you, loving you, loving your people, and allowing you to change us. And so I, I'm, I'm just grateful that this is the way that you want us to walk with you, and I pray we would not go back under the old way. And I pray for anybody here who just doesn't know what this, this means personally, has not experienced it personally. Maybe they've seen the glory reflected in others, but they want it for themselves. I pray that, um, I pray you would lift that veil tonight, that they would put their trust in you. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.